Imagine a woman with an enormous pregnant stomach doing a body roll on stage in a transparent shimmering robe, her belly a glowing gold disco ball. The woman slowly shimmies out of her dress, uncovering her breasts, then her baby bump, gazing coyly at the audience as she reveals a flirty set of lingerie. The next moment, she jumps into the splits. To close the number, she removes her bra with her back turned to the audience, then spins around dramatically to reveal a set of tassels over her breasts, which she begins whirling in a circular motion before ending her number by blowing a drawn-out kiss to the audience. Meet Satira Tewin, a 32-year-old burlesque performer and teacher who lives with her now two-year-old son Declan and husband Eric in Portland, Oregon. Satira's story challenges an idea that many of us consciously or unconsciously believe, that in order to be a good mom, you have to give up an important part of yourself, your sexuality. You're listening to Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. I'm your host, Donna Cleveland. I'm currently child-free, in my 30s, and trying to sort out my feelings about motherhood. When I take a broad view of my life and ask myself whether I want to experience being a mother and having a family, the answer that comes up for me is yes. The love I have for my own parents is really special to me, and I'd like to experience the other side of that love with my own child. But when I think about taking that leap now, like in this very moment, I get a feeling of panic, and my first feeling is no, not yet. To state the obvious, this isn't a can I can kick down the road forever, so I've decided to start examining my feelings on the subject. The decision to become a parent is deeply personal. There are so many factors that can play into that decision, from your career and relationship status to the experiences you had as a child. And looking around, I can see a lot of reasons not to have kids. I see moms taking on most of the load at home and falling behind both in rank and in pay at work. While I care about all of these factors, on top of that, I've become aware of some beliefs I've picked up along the way about motherhood. On some level, I believe you have to become a different person in order to be a good mother, a selfless figure who is no longer allowed to have your own needs. I thought it would be helpful to put some words to this image of motherhood I have in my head. Here's what I came up with. Nurturing, modest, sweet, domestic, self-sacrificing, and definitely not sexy. In this episode, we'll trace the origin of this fictional woman many of us believe we must become in order to be good moms. In particular, we'll focus on this notion that it's no longer appropriate to express your sexuality once you become a mother. Before we jump in, I just want to clarify that this episode is not meant to make women feel they need to worry about their appearance or get back their pre-baby body on top of all of their new responsibilities as a mom. I also am aware that motherhood may change many women's priorities, and that feeling sexy might not feel so important anymore. Instead, I'm simply exploring the notion that being a sexual being and being a good mom at the same time are somehow opposed. To some, Satira's dance may seem like lighthearted fun. To others, it may seem inappropriate. To me, it felt defiant, which I admired. 
it's just not common for people to think that pregnant women are sexy. But I'm over here like, hey, I'm still a super babe. I'm just as sexy as ever. I just have a big old belly. See me there like, oh my gosh, uh, pregnancy is beautiful and sexy. I'm still as fabulous as ever. I think the audience sees that and it probably just makes them think about pregnant women a little bit differently. Satira said she also planned to help people think a little bit differently about women after they've had their baby. Unfortunately, the idea is that moms are not sexy. All of a sudden you become a mom and you're just like a mom. And the sexy part of your life suddenly is supposed to just disappear and you're just supposed to take care of this other person, which I think is terrible. Before Satira became pregnant, she'd gotten used to receiving negative messages about her body. Growing up, she said her mom put a lot of pressure on her to be thin. When Satira joined Burlesque, it brought the issue to a head. When I did first start performing and she found out, one of the things that she said, she was like, well, you need to lose weight if you're going to do that. Wow. Um, how it, how it, did that make you like, feel? I mean, it didn't make me feel good, but it wasn't an uncommon thing to hear. I'm Asian, and Asian people tend to be smaller. My family made me feel like I should be thinner, and I love them. They didn't like do this on purpose. It's just kind of like the way Cambodian culture was, but that certainly shaped my lack of confidence while I was growing up, which, of course, was still there when I became an adult. I felt a lot of shame about my belly fat. <laughs> So like doing burlesque and not being like a super thin person, I did have to like get through that. When I first started performing, I always covered my belly. I mean, I guess that didn't stay too long because then I was like, "Woo! I like being free. This is great. (laughs) After years of performing, she became a headmistress at a burlesque school in Portland, where she helped guide other people through the same process of gaining confidence that she went through. It's just very empowering. Being a burlesque performer has made me a much more accepting person of myself. Seeing people of all shapes and sizes, feeling sexy and removing their clothes and being proud of themselves. I think that is just a wonderful thing. (laughs) So I love doing it and I love sharing it and teaching it to other people even more. Talking to Satira gave me a glimpse of a refreshing new model of motherhood, different from the one I'd been holding on to in my head. I wondered, where did I get my ideas in the first place? Well, there's the media, of course. Take Saturday Night Live's Mom Jeans skit. If you've seen it, it's pretty hard to forget. Tina Fey and Rachel Dratch frolic around in unflattering pants. Cut generously to fit a mom's body. This line sums it up. Give her something that says, I'm not a woman anymore. I'm a mom. (laughs) Talking to Satira, she also had a hard time pinning down a reason why we look at moms this way. Some people might be like, oh, that body made a person and now it has all these flaws. Or it could just be like the way moms are portrayed in the media and stuff. It's like, okay, they're they're not sexy. They're usually like doing stuff to like take care of a baby Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, or like a soccer mom thing. You know, I'm sure that body changes is part of it. I could see Satira's point. It's true. Women's bodies go through changes when they have kids. But there's a problem with this conclusion. 
If Satira's logic held, that would mean we'd be perfectly comfortable with moms looking sexy as long as they still conform to our society's beauty standards. But that's not what we see today. In the world of celebrity mom shaming, the Kardashians have been at the top of the list. Remember when Kim Kardashian broke the internet a few years ago when she posed nude for the cover of Paper magazine? Twitter exploded with negative comments, asking why she'd present herself that way now that she was a mom. Last year, Kourtney Kardashian became a target when she posed nude for GQ, with commenters calling her everything from disgusting to whorish for posing naked as a mom of three. Whether you're a fan of the Kardashians or not, when you think about it, these women are coming under fire for presenting the same image that made them famous to begin with. The media was giving me some clues. Even women who were famous sex symbols were expected to change in a fundamental way once they had a baby in their arms. But I still didn't know why we had these beliefs. To find answers, I turned next to Stephanie Kuntz, professor of history and family studies at Evergreen State College in Washington State and best-selling author of a book on the history of marriage. With the help of Kuntz, I hoped I could trace the beliefs battling out in the public sphere as well as in my own head back to their historical origins. I half expected Kuntz to tell me that religion was the source of the problem, end of story. After all, I know the time I spent at Catholic Sunday school growing up didn't exactly help me develop a well-adjusted attitude towards sex. But Kuntz said religion wasn't the source of this idea, so much as a tool used to impose societal norms. There's a very strong tradition of religious control over women. Sexuality is a very good, powerful way to control people's personal behavior. And if you invest it with high morality, that's something that, that has a strong influence on people. Apparently, I couldn't blame religion for my hang-ups about motherhood. Going into this episode, my guess was that the media or religion were the source of my problems. But as I was soon to discover, the real source strangely was tied up instead in the advent of private property. Kuntz walked me through a historical timeline to show the relationship between land ownership and society's ideas around motherhood and sexuality. I'll share her findings with you here. The story begins in ancient Greece, a breeding ground for patriarchal beliefs. You have to ensure that no man plants a seed in the row that you have hoed. <laughs> and in many societies that really emphasize private property and inheritance, there is extreme concern with protecting the, quote, virtue, unquote, of women so that you may be sure that you don't introduce, quote, a foreigner into the soil of the patrimonial family. <laughs> the link between land ownership and sexual practices only became more clear when Kuntz began studying our foraging ancestors and discovering much less patriarchal models of motherhood. These hunter-gatherers likely had much more egalitarian configurations. Hunting together and then sharing the kill while it was fresh just made common sense. And in these hunter-gatherer societies, the women often provided a higher percentage of the overall food, making them highly valued members of the tribe. Kuhn said many of these tribes were likely non-monogamous as well, because in a setting where everything was shared, including parenting duties, there wasn't a strong need to emphasize paternity. While most hunter-gatherer societies existed more than 10,000 years ago, there are more recent and even current-day examples to draw from. 
There are many examples where we do not have the extreme jealousy and guarding of women's reproductive rights that you see in so many agricultural societies and in some hunting societies as well. There's a wonderful uh, account of living with the Montagnai Nascapi Indians by a, a Jesuit. And he noted that although most women stayed home with their children when the men went out on long hunting forays, some women went out with them. And he thought that this was just absolutely terrible because they were out on their own with the men. And also he pointed out that even the ones that stayed home had a lot more freedom than women back in the in, in old Europe. And so at one point he has a discussion with this Nescapi in what we would call today his informant, you know, in anthropological terms. And he says... Now, you've got to keep your women at home because they're not as strong. And the Nescapi says, well, actually, they, you know, help us move the tents. They're very strong. And so then he picks another reason. Well, they're not very wise. And uh, the Nescapi says, you know, we rely on the words of old women. Old women do not fling their words about without meaning. And so finally, he pulls out his big argument from the European perspective. Well, if you allow women such freedom, how do you know? that the children she bears will belong to you. And the Nescapi Indian replies, thou hast no sense. We love all the children of the tribe. You Frenchmen love only the children of your body, but we love all the children of the tribe. Another example is in a handful of tribal societies in South America. Probably the most shocking example I can give you to modern day Americans is among the Bari of Venezuela and several other small scale groups. There's a belief that any man who sleeps with a woman during the course of her pregnancy contributes something of himself to her child. And so when the woman has the baby, the midwife says, name every lover you have had during your pregnancy. And if she names more than the one man who is her actual husband, the midwife goes to each of those men and says, you have become a father. Now, here's what's so interesting. Today in our society, this would be the stuff of a Jerry Springer, you know, knockdown drag out fight. Right. But it was one of the best assurances that a child would survive until adulthood because men took that responsibility seriously and contributed a portion of their fishing and hunting to the child. Uh, of the woman that they had slept with during her pregnancy. But for the most part, when foraging tribes gave way to agrarian societies, Kuntz said the prevailing attitude became similar to the ancient Greeks. No man plants a seed in the row that you have hoed. Having this attitude has made it easier for men to control their bloodline and to pass along land ownership for the past 10,000 years. Now that you've gotten some background on our foraging past, we'll fast forward to the medieval days. During this time period, and actually all the way up to the 1700s, women were considered the lusty sex, more prone to sexual error and adventure than men. They were not considered naturally virtuous or naturally asexual. Kuntz explained that at that time, men and women worked on the farm together. So it made sense that men had this view of women because they were around to keep them under control. Kuntz said this attitude continued through the colonization of the U.S. and into the late 1700s. If this is starting to feel like a boring history lesson, hang in there. We've just arrived at the critical moment where women were suddenly zapped of their sexuality. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing by the early 1800s, and with it, men began to work outside the home. It follows that if men considered their women to be lusty and not to be trusted, they'd have a hard time leaving them home alone and to their own devices. 
By insisting that women be asexual guardians of the home, men could head out to work without any worries. At the same time, the love marriage began gaining popularity. People were terrified by it. They said, if you marry for love, how will you get men to keep controlling their wives. If they love them, they might give in to them. Uh, how will you get a woman to marry the right person who her father wants her to marry? What will prevent her from running off with some inappropriate man? And how in the world will we prevent people from demanding the right to divorce a woman to leave a husband who doesn't treat her with love? This only reinforced the idea that women must be pure and asexual as a sort of coping mechanism for men. This is when you get the idea of the male breadwinner, the female nurturer. And women became redefined as basically asexual or pure. Kuhn said motherhood only added to this idea of men and women being opposites. It's really not until this new love match ideal of the late 18th century that you get this idea that, that it's motherhood that makes a woman totally pure. And the, of course, the contradiction that we tend to forget how she got to be a mother in the first place. Since mostly white middle class women were actually able to stay home and fulfill this vision of domesticity, Perhaps the most devastating consequences of this new view is what it did to poor women. If she's a woman who has to work in the fields, if she's a black woman, a minority, a working class woman, then she has actually forfeited her claim to true womanhood. And so men could go to her as a prostitute. This attitude also wreaked havoc on married couples' sex lives. And one of the interesting things that happened to men's sexuality is that many of them could not have a sexual relationship with their wife in the same way that they could with a prostitute. I read a, a letter that a man wrote to Marie Dopes, who was one of the first women who wrote a sexual advice book at the early 20th century. And he said, I am so thankful that you wrote this book because before you wrote it, I would not have dared to express any of these kinds of sexual actions or behaviors to my wife for fear that she would think I was thinking she was a prostitute. So men got this tremendous diversification between good women and bad women, just as women did. Meanwhile, women were beginning to suffer from extreme sexual frustration. Jen Haylett, a professor of sociology at the University of Iowa, who I also interviewed for this episode, said women began flocking to the doctor's office for relief. These women are going to doctors with essentially all of this sexual repression that's built up and frustration and doctors are finding ways to alleviate that pressure essentially by like bringing them to orgasm, you know, so acknowledging their sexuality, but doing it in a way that's sort of clinical and not really about pleasure and then putting them back into their sphere at home where they then assume this identity that seems almost asexual again. And wow, really? I didn't know it's that. really interesting. What? would they be saying that they were solving for them sexual repression so or would they not they frame would, it that way no they wouldn't frame it that way sometimes they this is when people would talk a lot about like hysteria so they would say that it um could be something like that it could just be related to like pelvic pain or discomfort they wouldn't talk about it in explicitly sexual terms the feminist movement began upending many of these ideas in the late 19th and 20th centuries, but some of these notions haven't fully disappeared. In fact, Haylett had a theory that while women overall are in many ways liberated today, we still haven't relinquished control over mothers. 
that maybe we've come to a point where women without children are seen as independent beings and we very much believe in freedom and independence for individuals. So we let those women kind of do what they want. But then once they have kids, once there's a reason to or a justification for looking at those women as no longer independent or solely as individuals anymore, we like quickly latch on to that because we have this desire to still kind of control women's sexuality. And I think when they have kids, it's almost like a, a door opens where, where people all of a sudden feel, okay, now we can justify judging them because they're no longer, I guess, like complete individuals anymore. But it's interesting we don't do that with men, right? I don't really see men being called out in the same way for any of their behaviors pre or post having a child. While I'm all in favor of mothers being liberated from this judgment, I found myself struggling with the question, is it harmful to your kids if you look sexy around them? The most insightful opinion I got on the matter came from Lena Maria Murillo, a professor of gender studies at the University of Iowa, who, apart from studying the matter, is also having an ongoing conversation about it in her household with her husband and two young daughters. Society is incredible at manipulating children's minds from a very early age into thinking not only what is gender appropriate, but what is age appropriate. Mario's daughters already have strong feelings that sexy is something their mom should not be. They're just like, mom, can you button, you know, you need to button your shirt all the way up. They have friends of theirs who are already telling their parents, like, mom, don't do that. That's embarrassing. You know, that whole like, oh, mom, please, it's so embarrassing. And I'm like, don't even try that with me. Mario said she's also had to defend the way she presents herself to her husband. You know, we both grew up Catholic and um, his family's very conservative. And it was the same thing. You know, it's just like, you're a mother now. And I was like, I am, but I'm not dead. And I enjoy expressing myself through clothing, through jewelry, through I think it's a wonderful way to express your identity, your imagination, um, and your body. It may not look great by the ideals that we have today about, you know, the super fit body, the soup, like the yoga body, whatever. Um, but I like what I look like. And so, yes, I, you know, I tell my children like, no, I'm keeping the button where it is. In essence, Mario says that kids all go through the process of realizing that their parents are real human beings with lives of their own, and that respecting their sexual autonomy should simply be a part of that. While that process is never going to be comfortable for parents or for kids, she says that doesn't mean it's unhealthy. As funny as Mario's stories are about her run-ins with her daughters, she's making the best of a somewhat frustrating situation where she has to defend her behavior to her family and to the outside world. Because they'd lo they'll love to have that conversation in public with like other people. Yeah, no, where they'll just call me out. They're like, mom, that button's really low. And there's like seven other people there. And I'm like, it's fine. This fits in with a phenomenon Kuntz pointed out. Unlike past time periods where there was a very clear model of motherhood, in today's world, women no longer have one ideal of motherhood to follow. Instead, they face conflicting models, and whichever one they choose, they end up having to defend to the world around them. Most modern women feel guilty whatever they do. If they stay home, they, they say, oh my gosh, am I setting a bad role model for my daughter? You know, what am I going to do in the future? If they go out to work, they think, oh, am I being a bad mother? And people don't like feeling ambivalent. It's hard to admit ambivalence. It's hard to admit that I don't like half of what I'm doing. And so one very 
common psychological response to it is to blame the other, to, is to, to project the part of you that you don't like onto somebody else. So that you can say, well, the people who stay home are blah, 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 if you're a worker or uh, if you're a stay-at-home mom, the people who are working are neglecting their kids. And I think that it becomes more intense among women precisely because we are the victims, so to speak, of this incredible cross-cutting set of pressures. Kuhn said we have to develop our own models of what we want motherhood to look like. And this brings me back to Satira. Satira kept performing all the way up until she was 32 weeks pregnant. When I talked to her just days before she gave birth to her son, here's what she had to say about what she expected life to be like post-pregnancy. I want all women to know that pregnancy and motherhood is sexy. And, you know, you don't have to let this part of your life take away something that you once had. I know I'm going to be exhausted and I'm probably going to be covered in poop and I've not washed my hair for two weeks. But (laughs) if I could just remember that I am still sexy on the inside, then I'm sure that other people will see it too whenever I do take a shower. I decided to check in with her to see how her expectations of motherhood measured up to reality. She let me know that she returned to burlesque nine weeks after giving birth to baby Declan. She spent the first few months facing challenges, such as having to pump breast milk backstage and getting used to changes to her body, which she said has made her a believer in high-waisted thongs. She said Declan comes backstage sometimes and loves when she gets all fancy with her glitter lips. He also enjoys pulling off her fake eyelashes. Satira is booking shows less frequently than before having Declan, but says she feels as sexy as ever while admittedly a little tired. So where does this leave my relationship to motherhood? Talking to Kuntz and the other experts I interviewed for this episode, I found it fascinating to tie beliefs that felt so stifling and personal to me back to such impersonal and practical origins, essentially keeping control over land and resources. Knowing where these beliefs come from and seeing how little they make sense in today's world does make them lose some of their power. Now, when I think of myself with a child, I see myself less as a one-dimensional Madonna figure and more as a multifaceted human being, just like I am today, but with motherhood as a new facet to add to that collection. I'm Donna Cleveland, and you're listening to Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. This show was edited by me, with production help from Cody Olivas and Nicholas Naoti. The episode artwork is by Chosie Titus. The theme song is by Mira Oberdyke, and original music is by Taylor Ross. And I'd like to thank Molly Bloom for being my mentor. If you have feedback or a story you'd like to see featured in a future episode, email me at podcast at Look out for a new episode of Thread the Needle on Wednesday, January 1st.